Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here's your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America, our weekly examination of how alcohol beverages and the alcohol industry impacts our lives, our communities, and our economy. I'm Brad Crever, and I'm joined today by co-host Kathy Durbin, who's the Chief of Licensing, Regulation, and Education for the Montgomery County, Maryland Department of Liquor Control. And her two guests, Pam Erickson, a former alcohol regulator for the state of Oregon, and Neil Inslee, counsel for the National Alcohol Beverage Control Association. Association. Hello, Kathy. Hi, Brad. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Uh, Montgomery County Department of Liquor Control is effectively the alcohol regulator for your county. What does that mean, and, and what do you do? Um, well, we, we run a very comprehensive program here. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about Montgomery County. We, we back up to Washington, D.C., we have about a million people living in our county, and um, we have over 140 languages spoken in our schools, so we're a very diverse community. Um, as far as licensing, we license about 1,100 uh, facilities, business facilities, who sell and serve alcohol, and we also license, I would say, close to a 1,000 uh, one-day event licensing as well. They've They've doubled in the last couple of years, so we're, um, we're really busy with the one-day events. We do a lot of events very well here in the county. Um, so what we do as regulators is uh, we created a – the first thing we did was create an uh, alcohol law education and regulatory training, and it's become our go-to training. We train thousands of people who work in businesses um, that are licensed to sell and serve alcohol every year. And we just want to complement the local, uh, the statewide server training and tell people what they can do in businesses. Um, the kind, we try to help them with alcohol policies and it's really a, a great way to build relationships with the inspectors and people that are working in the office. Um, so they come to see us and it's, it's been an awesome experience and we keep trying to improve that, um, year after year. We also um, have a lot of grant and award-funded programs here, um, Cops and Shops programs. We actually worked with the Responsible Retailing Forum on mystery shop programs and over-service programs, and uh, we create uh, ID calendars for retailers annually, retailers annually and give it to, to them during renewals. So that also educates them and tells them about some of the violations that have been prevalent in the past year. and. Um, try to help steer them away and prevent those situations from occurring. Um, we do a lot Kathy, of media advocacy as well. Kathy, you, you talk about training. Uh, what are the, the specific concerns you have in the training? What are the people being trained to do? What are the major concerns? Well, we really took the local rules and regulations, and that is our guideline for the whole training. So it tells people what they can do, but the, some of the main points, of course, are um, over-service issues, how to identify a person who might have been drinking too much, how to identify that customer that's a repeat offender, re, uh, repeat, uh, repeat problem customer, and what to do about it. Um, we do some role-playing. 
We work with um, IDs and, and um, try to identify how to um, spot fake IDs and also show pictures of some of the compliance um, partners, the individuals that are working with us, and say, these types of people are going to be coming to your business. So we really, it's a hands-on training. Well, with 140 languages being spoken, uh, it must be very challenging to be uh, verifying IDs and and to um, have such a diverse population all conforming with your alcohol sales laws. Yeah, it is. It's very uh, well. It, it's funny because we have a couple different language uh, programs in, in different languages, Spanish-speaking language, and sometimes we um, get people. We have a. a Korean trainer as well that helps us out occasionally, but really it's cultural. So that's the conversation we have with people is not so much the language barrier, but the cultural barrier and um, how people might have grown up a certain way and alcohol was treated differently than it might be here. Yes, we've done a lot of work, as you know, in New Mexico. And and one of the things we had heard is that uh, very often uh, Hispanic uh, uh, clerks and servers uh, have a cultural background in which to refuse service would be just inappropriate to say no yeah. to a customer like that. So sometimes yeah. it's the culture as much as the law that's a challenge. Exactly. Kathy, would you tell us about today's guest and the topic she'll be looking at? Sure. Um, so today uh, we have Pamela Erickson. She, as you said earlier, she's a former alcohol regulator from the state of Oregon and the CEO of Public Action Management. We're happy to have um, Pam today. And Neil Inslee, who's the Senior Vice President and General Counsel for the National Alcohol Beverage Control Association, or NAPCA. And I should add that Neil has also served as the Chairman of the Virginia Alcohol Beverage Control Board and as a Chairman of NAPCA. So today we're going to talk about alcohol. (laughs) Go figure. Um, So whether you choose to drink or not, uh, alcohol impacts everyone in the community. And today we're going to talk uh, a little bit about alcohol and its effects on the community throughout the years. So although legal parameters to restrict alcohol use were even present in colonial times, we're probably not going to go back that far, um, (laughs) the temperance movements have come and gone, and laws have been created to offset uh, many times the wrong turn in decision-making. So we probably stick it to about, stick with about a, a hundred years, today's conversation. And um, Pam, not that I think you're a hundred years old, but we're going to begin with you. And okay. we're going to talk, um, you know a lot about, um, uh, about what happened uh, back then with alcohol and what, was, what the climate was. Um, so let's go back uh, to the early 1900s, um, and as I mentioned earlier, it's been a challenge to balance effective legislation with alcohol trends, so even, even 100 years ago. So uh, can you uh, paint us a picture of what the country looked like in terms of alcohol use and abuse during, during that time? Yes, and I can. Uh, I need to just briefly go earlier than that because uh, the history of alcohol in this country really starts with Europe. Um, Europeans uh, were very, very heavy drinkers and have been until this day. Europe is the heaviest drinking region in the world, 
And when people started migrating from Europe to this country, they brought their drinking habits and as well as their know-how um, on how to make alcohol with them. And it, it, it's really kind of shocking to read the history and see how much people actually drank and some of their habits. They um, Workers would typically stop at 11 o'clock, not for coffee, but to have a drink. And then they would work until 4 o'clock, and again they would stop and have a drink. Um, and there were... There were e- even a belief that drinking was healthful and good for you. But um, as things went on, that became, it became clear that that really wasn't true. By 1830, the consumption of alcohol, uh, mostly in the form of hard liquor, was really huge. Um, more than seven gallons a year for every person over the age of 15. That's almost three times what our consumption level is today. So consumption became very heavy. And during the 1800s, you started seeing women being um, speaking out on the issue. And even though they couldn't vote or couldn't hold office, alcohol problems really impacted women because... Um, oftentimes the the husband would go to the t- the saloon after work and basically drink up their paycheck um, so that, so by the end of the the month or week whenever they were paid there wasn't much left for the family also heavy drinking became to uh, became associated with wife beating child abuse um, all kinds of other social ills. So women began to speak out, and you had a, a a kind of waxing and waning of the temperance movement that ultimately um, brought us prohibition. But let me describe some of the market conditions right before prohibitions because they really have an impact on the kind of regulations that we developed. Um, at, at that time in the early 1900s, the drink of choice was beer. And local markets were very, very dominated by large national beer companies. And um, it, it, it's really interesting that, that there would be so many drinking uh, establishments, even in a small town. I grew up in Astoria, which is a small town on the coast of Oregon. And my grandmother had some maps of the town in ni- 1896. And it was amazing to see how many saloons were downtown in this small town, and uh, along with uh, women's boarding houses and gambling establishments. So you had a lot of um, a lot of social problems associated with excess consumption of alcohol. And the way the market was organized was through what's called tied houses. Um, the 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 companies that brewed beer were national companies, so they generally were not your neighbor who was brewing the product. It was somebody um, out, outside of your state. 
and um, they were very, very interested in making maximum profits. So they sold alcohol very, very aggressively, and they sold it in what's called tied houses, which means that the brewer, the, the national company that brewed the beer, owned the distribution and owned the retail operation, even in small towns. And these retail operations had exclusive contracts. They had to only sell the beer that was brewed by their parent company. So it's called vertical integration. It's a form of monopoly. Well, you had several national companies, and they all had saloons in even small towns. So the the town was really saturated with not only saloons, but very, very aggressive sales. Also, these, these saloons were involved in public corruption, bribery of officials. They would send money to, um, in, in the case of Oregon, it's Salem. Uh, so they would buy off legislators so that they would enact favorable laws. So things got really out of control, and social problems were very acute. Um, and that's, this is the situation that spawned, uh, I would say, an equally extreme solution, which was prohibition. During prohibition, the manufacture and distribution uh, and sale of alcohol was prohibited, but consumption was not. Enforcement was, was very light and fairly poor, but it did reduce some problems. It did cut consumption. It did eliminate a lot of the public nuisance problems of drunks wandering around the saloon, um, public urination, and that kind of thing. But it also spawned other problems. As the years went on, uh, people kept drinking and um, consumption started ratcheting up. And and speakeasies sprung up. These were kind of these were underground operations, but kind of everybody knew where they were, and it was easy to get into. And so drinking continued and, and ratcheted up, and the prohibition law became very unpopular. And and eventually it was repealed in 1933, um, which was an amazing feat in and of itself. But then um, the, the amendment that repealed the legislation granted the states the primary responsibility for regulation. Um, now, states didn't know much about regulation because if regulation wasn't much of a thing before Prohibition. There were some cities or some local areas that licensed operators, but regulation wasn't very robust, so states didn't know much about it. Um, A a prominent entrepreneur of the day, John D. Rockefeller, um, sensed that repeal was happening. He happened to be a teetotaler himself, but he sensed that repeal was happening, and so he commissioned a major study of alcohol regulation around the world, and um, this This study was produced in a book called Toward Liquor Control. And in that book, 
um, they make various recommendations on how to regulate alcohol. Um, at the time, it you know, no one even knew if it was possible. It, could you really regulate alcohol and, and solve some problems? But this was a very comprehensive work. It's a very interesting read because it's pretty clear that their recommendations form the framework for our alcohol regulation today. And a couple of the principles um, that that this book promoted were things like um, preventing tight house, preventing the kind of market domination that not only dominated our local communities, ran roughshod over our local communities, but also dominated our state legislatures. So, so um, tight house laws are um, a structure that prohibits a manufacturer from owning um, a distributor or a retailer. Um, Neil will probably tell you more about the tight house system, but that's very critical. It prevents the, the, the kind of monopoly that's called vertical integration, where the, the one entity owns manufacturing, distribution, and retailing and can dominate local markets. Um, certain trade practices were also instituted to prevent exclusive arrangements in, uh, and to even the playing field so that small and large operators could operate in the same system. Um, this three-tiered system also has some benefits for us that are not well acknowledged. It, it um, engenders a robust tax collection system. We lose very little ta- revenue through this system. Um, and, and it provides a tracking system for products that might be tainted or have some problem. So um, since, since that time, there have been uh, periods when we've loosened our regulations and Drinking has ratcheted up, and we've had to scale back. But for the most part, this system has worked well in controlling alcohol and its social problems. There is no silver bullet. We will never completely eliminate social problems, but our system does a pretty good job. Um, that's great. Thank you. Actually, um, Toward Liquor Control is one of my go-to books at all times. So it brings you back to where you need to be and great information so people should really get a hold of it. Um, Okay, Pam, thank you so much and um, we're going to take a quick break and um, come back and continue our discussion. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business and more on demand 24-7. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. 
Starting and running a business can be hard. Moving forward and keeping the excitement alive can be difficult to do. I'm Joe Hosman. If you are experiencing the struggles of opening or sustaining a business or even knowing you need a change in your life, you want to tune in to my show, Go For It. My guests and I will show you the steps needed to build something positive in your week. Listen every Thursday morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answers Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. My name is Kathy Durbin, and we just heard a great segment from Pam Erickson, and she did a wonderful job illustrating what was happening in the country and why the 18th Amendment didn't quite um, do what we wanted it to do, what the country wanted it to do. That one-size-fits-all approach um, in regulating alcohol really didn't work. So, as mentioned, in 1933, Congress repealed Prohibition um, with the 21st Amendment. So I'm going to ask Neil Inslee to chime in here. Good afternoon, Neil. Good afternoon, Kathy. Thanks for having me on. Sure, I'm glad you're here. Um, so tell us a little bit about that framework that was um, devised post-prohibition. It's, I think a lot of people don't really understand those three tiers and what they're about. Well, um, absolutely. And I think first and foremost, we, you know, and, and we have to uh, acknowledge in the discussion that um, alcohol uh, is no ordinary commodity. So we're not talking about potato chips or other consumables that we have, and certainly uh, with the history of alcohol in this country, I think it's fairly uh, prevalent, although it does uh, sometimes in these discussions, when you're talking about the three-tier system that we have in place, warrant uh, acknowledgement or, or uh, you know, to remember that, that alcohol is not your typical consumable commodity, uh, and we've certainly learned that lesson through, throughout our history in this country with it. Um, so, as you look at the three-tier system that we have uh, developed in this country, uh, I have uh, heard years ago someone liken it to kind of the hourglass approach. And what I mean by that is um, you have the three different tiers of uh, alcohol distribution in this country. You have the manufacturers, which are uh, historically referred to as the top tier. Then you have the wholesalers, which are the middle tier, and then the retailers, which are uh, the bottom tier or the tier that is uh, 
direct um, uh, suppliers to the consumer. So in that hourglass analogy, you have to think of the uh, myriad of uh, manufacturers that there are in this world, and then the uh, high number of retailers that we have in the country, and then you have the middle tier in the middle, uh, which are the wholesalers, and it kind of has to funnel through that distribution point. Uh, why that is important, uh, aside from the vertical integration that, that Pam spoke of, which we'll talk about uh, in a minute, uh, that in modern times is proven to be very important in, uh, in tracking the product and making sure that uh, bad product or tainted product is easily removed from the marketplace before it can do harm or damage uh, to the public. Uh, it also helps, obviously, with the tied house laws that were mentioned in preventing vertical integration, where you have ownership all the way through and can place undue influence all the way through the supply chain, uh, which we certainly have seen caused uh, all kinds of problems um, pre-prohibition. So the, those are the three tiers of distribution and some of the philosophy that goes behind why the system uh, works well in this country. Um, that's great. So it's funny because right now I hear a lot of people wanting to, um, we have a lot of small manufacturers out there and um, a lot of other small businesses that just are saying, why can't I get uh, certain beers on my tap or why can't I do certain things? Why can't I get free glassware? Why is there always a limit on things? I guess that goes back to the uh, trade practices. Why are they even put into effect? What, what do they do for people? Well, they, they help to maintain an orderly marketplace uh, in, this, in this alcohol commodity that we, that we deal in in this country. And uh, although some of them uh, have been loosened or uh, tweaked a little for modern times, the basic principle stays in place that, uh, you know, vertical integration or ownership doesn't necessarily just come in the form of outright ownership. It can come in the form of undue influence or, or bribes or, uh, you know, what starts as glassware could end up in uh, funding of equipment and things uh, at the retail tier or even at the wholesale tier. So uh, we don't want the, we want the tiers to act independently and not become dependent upon one tier whereby their business model then has to answer to uh, the or for the benefits that they've received from a member of the other tier, and it all relates back to that uh, undue influence uh, and or control. And again, it helps to promote uh, an orderly marketplace whereby each tier is uh, functions independently. So, who benefits from these laws? I'm I'm thinking about um, all the sometimes the small businesses complain because they don't get something. Are they the ones who benefit in the long run, or um, is it the little guy against the big guy um, when you're talking about um, getting uh, gifts or getting something of value? Well, I think an orderly marketplace benefits everyone in the long run, and, and certainly it creates a level playing field. And uh, what you, know, you have to kind of look at big picture uh, when you have this discussion because, uh, you know, if you don't have this orderly marketplace and you don't have the level playing field that the tie to house laws and regulations promote, um, then you're going to have those who uh, have 
no issue in uh, accepting bribes or doing things uh, uh, illegally uh, from profiting from it, while others who are trying to be good stewards and trying to do the right thing and recognize their responsibility uh, in the alcohol distribution system will ultimately suffer because they, uh, you know, they are trying to do the right thing and maintain uh, a safe and orderly marketplace for the product that they dispense while others uh, may not be so forthright, and it, it does and would create an imbalance. So as, uh, you know, issue by issue, it may uh, be detrimental or, or seem detrimental to a particular um, small business person or whatever. I think big picture in an orderly marketplace, it does benefit them because if you wanted to get into a pay-to-play kind of situation, um, you know, for the smaller folks, uh, it would not take long for the big companies and the ones that we were worried about in having ultimate control and vertical integration from completely uh, running you out of business with their buying power. Yeah, and I think that um, some of the reps that we work with that work for some of the um, the bigger, the larger companies and for industry, they don't really understand the value of those trade practices in, um, in that state and why they're there. They just know that they're not supposed to stock shelves a certain way or they're not supposed to touch other people's product. Um, they're not supposed to, they have a limit of how much they can um, give away for a special event, and they really don't understand um, what is, is they're trying to do, what we're trying to keep that even playing field and trying to um, allow that to happen for everyone. I know right. our state... And, some, and some, Kathy, some, you only have to really look at the, you know, to go to the grocery store, for instance, and look at yeah. the soda aisle or the uh, potato chip aisle, if you will. Um, right. You know, uh, you don't see a lot of uh, small companies in that in that field because they have to buy shelf space. Um, something that is not heard of in in the alcohol industry because it's illegal. So that's kind of the point of, you know, the smaller companies actually have uh, uh, a better opportunity where the tied house laws are, are in place and in effect to create and maintain that level playing field. Neil, may I ask you uh, another aspect about this three-tier system that you and Pam have been describing? Uh, you, you've been talking a lot about protecting the smaller business, and I, and I appreciate that. But from a consumer's point of view, I mean, I can go into a convenience store and buy a single roll of, of uh, paper towels, but I can go into a big box store and get a whole unopened carton. Uh, there's, you know, purchasing in large quantity. And wouldn't the consumer benefit if a big box store could purchase um, alcohol directly from the brewer or the distiller rather than have to go through that middle tier distributor? Well, I think um, the the ultimate problem you would have there is uh, one uh, what you know what products you're going to see because uh, certainly, that buying power is going to translate into, um, you know, the larger manufacturers being the only ones in the in the playing field, as as we discussed before. So, you know, your your selection is likely not going to be as robust in that situation, and they're going to push only that product 
that uh, they make the highest margin on, which is generally, you know, the uh, the larger brand names and or, uh, as we have seen, uh, your private labels or control label uh, brands, which are uh, uh, ultimately owned by the retailer. So I think, you know, the selection and, and that would go down. Um, another aspect of that goes back to something that, uh, I said earlier, in this not being uh, an ordinary commodity, we, you know, you have to keep that kind of in the back of your mind that this is, you know, alcohol is a socially accepted product. It is enjoyed by uh, many in this country, myself included. Um, but it is also a product that that has an inherent dichotomy with it because it is one that can cause social damage and 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 ills to society and public safety. Um, you know, the CDC reported that 88,000 people uh, die every year in this country from misuse of alcohol. So, you know, to, to make the, to equate it to toilet paper or potato chips uh, is hard to do outside of that context and not recognizing that this is a product that can be enjoyed and should be enjoyed responsibly, but it also has another side to it that we have to, uh, maintain an orderly uh, regulatory system to make sure that the uh, public safety and health is taken into consideration in its distribution. Yeah, it seems sometimes uh, convenience is the is the lead word. Yes, and and we have seen, um, you know, it's not to say that things can't change and we still stay within the framework and we still can keep. Uh, you know, uh, public health and safety in mind, and we've seen that in in some of the advances in technologies and things that have come about as uh, the system has been uh, tweaked some to accommodate that. And you know, we you know we certainly um, are going to have to continue to go that direction, and and we should go in that direction, but it should be done. Uh, in a thoughtful manner with uh, um, as much of the facts laid out and, and not a rip the Band-Aid off and then we'll deal with the consequences later. Um, and I think a methodical approach in how we continue to use this system that has served us so well uh, into the future with the advances in technology and customer convenience and all of these things, I think we can continue to do that, but we certainly don't want to lose sight of the fact of the product that we are dealing in. Yeah. Well, Kathy, you're the director of education for your um, for your county, and I know most of the education is directed towards the retailers that are selling and serving alcohol. But Neil's describing a need for for educating the public on why a system that somehow seems a little antiquated is really very relevant and necessary. Oh, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. Um, more more and more our public um, campaigns are really community campaigns, and we're trying to take the different perspectives, and this is a perfect perspective. It is. It gets out of control, I think, mainly because of social media. Everything's put out in tweets now, and convenience and getting things quickly is where we are, and um, alcohol is different, and we should treat it with respect. Um, uh, Neil, I wanted to ask you one question um, quickly. Uh, the private labels, I, um, I, I don't really understand that. Does somebody um, make that product and then sell it to the business and they can just slap their label on it? 
Well, there are um, <laughs> there are two forms that it takes. One is the private label, where it's actually um, the label of the uh, of the retailer, or and then the other is a control label, where um, they it's not actually their name on it. So uh, what happens is they generally contract with a distiller or a winery or a brewery to produce a, uh, a brand for them to be sold at their location um, that uh, is kind of known as uh, that retailer's brand. And, the you know, obviously uh, the margins are higher on it. It still has to go through... Uh, all of the regular course um, that any other label would have to go through, and it still has to be distributed uh, in that particular state through uh, the system that they have in place and the three-tier system. It can't go directly from the manufacturer to the the retailer. It still has to go through the normal channels uh, of the three-tier system. Very interesting. That's great. Okay, well, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you, Neil. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. When it comes to successful marketing, nothing speaks louder than your company name. A clear, concise, and compelling brand identity opens doors and invites further conversation. If you struggle to explain, educate, or clarify who you are and what you do, then you'll benefit from listening to Brilliant Branding with expert Phil Davis and co-host Liz Heemstra. Discover insider secrets from enlightened naming strategies to effective brand positioning. Tune in live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. You hear about it all the time. Compromises, destructive malware, major breaches. You can't turn on the news without hearing about the latest cyber event. Learn more about cybersecurity, how it has become one of the most significant threats to our national security, and the battle experts undergo every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Task Force 7 Radio with host George Redis is the voice of cybersecurity around the world. Tune in live every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now, back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back. 
We've been discussing the flow of alcohol in America and its impact on communities with guests Pam Erickson and Neil Ensley. Um, so where are we today? There's so much going on with alcohol. It seems to be everywhere. Let's talk a little bit about um, further about promoting high volumes and maybe some of the big box stores. Um, Pam, any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, the, the, the problem with having large retailers sell alcohol is that they have enormous buying power and they can afford to sell alcohol very, very cheaply. But um, big box grocery stores uh, operate on the mo- on a, a business model of selling in volume, um, in very high volume, in order to make profit. They have very, very tiny margins. So they have to make up their profit by selling in high volume. Um, in the United Kingdom, four big, big box grocery chains have completely dominated the market for alcohol in that country, and, and it has promoted an alcohol epidemic with very high rates of drinking, liver cirrhosis, other kinds of problems. We don't want to see that in our country. Plus, um, we like a robust um, system, market system, where competition is keen. Um, and small operators can operate profitably alongside big operators. So these, this three-tiered system, even though we didn't envision the retailer dominating the market versus the manufacturer, it's the same principle. And um, the trade practices in the, the three-tier system really prevents the kind of market domination that could re- really promote high-volume consumption. Yeah. Well, more and more we're seeing the small manufacturers popping up, and um, they've almost become tourist attractions in, uh, in many areas as well as um, positive influences on local economies. Um, what do you think impact they're making on the community? Well, Actually, I know um, you just it, wrote a paper on that. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did. Um, first of all, I, I think that you, you can credit the three-tiered system by keeping the manufacturers, the distributors, and the, the retailers basically independent. That has allowed the flourishing of small operators. And I want to I contrast Mexico so you can see how... Uh, our system allows innovation in uh, new products, whereas their system does not. In Mexico, there are two large beer companies that have exclusive arrangements with almost all retailers. And um, you don't have much of a craft business in Mexico. They did have a competition commission ruling a few years ago that said that the big companies have to reduce their exclusive arrangements, but um, you don't, you still don't see a lot of flourishing of craft operations because if a retailer has an exclusive arrangement to sell only one manufacturer's products, they aren't going to put the small craft operation uh, products on their shelves. And so, you know, small operators just can't get to market. 
And that would be true in our country, but we now have a a huge number of small operators. We have over 5,000 breweries, over 9,000, I I believe now 10,000 wineries, and about 2,000 distillers. So we have a flourishing market of small operators that just plain couldn't, we, we, we wouldn't have this kind of thing if we didn't have the three-tiered system and some of our trade practice regulations. It seems like many of those, um, those small businesses um, really want to do it all themselves. They, do, they don't really um, want the tiers. They want, it, they want to do it. It's almost like uh, we're going in full circle. Yeah, ironically, as these small operators get bigger, they want to keep their privileges, and um, ultimately, it 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 could it could destroy our system. It could represent a, a basic kind of unfairness and unlevel playing field where the small guys have privileges and can, even though they get bigger. Um, so it, we have a lot of things to sort out. Whenever we tinker with the system, um, there will always be issues that we have to iron out. So I, I wrote a report to to basically just describe what we have because it's happened so rapidly, and then to try to in, identify some of the issues that we really need to kind of sort out so that, you know, we can, you know, continue to have a, a good regular, regulatory system that controls social problems. That's great. Well, um, Neil, so um, there's so many influencers in um, what we do in the regulatory world and legislation and things that um, we're talking about on a daily basis here. I know at one point people would say, um, you know, alcohol laws never change. I feel like we're constantly updating, reviewing, changing. It's what we do all the time now. Um, and there's so many influencer, influencers in the community. Um, there's enforcement, prevention, elected officials, industry. It just The list goes on now. And then there's trends and money and lots of other things out there. Um, so what do you think about the unintended consequences to all these changes and things happening so rapidly? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, well... Um I think obviously, you know, as uh, as we stated before, change is not necessarily bad, but it, in particularly in this discussion, it needs to be measured and it needs to be thoughtful. Um, I've heard uh, practically my whole career in, in the alcohol industry about antiquated laws, and that always seems to be kind of the go-to, but, you know, you don't hear a lot of people talking about uh, the Constitution being antiquated because it's been around for so long. Have we uh, made tweaks to it? Have we uh, advanced it or applied it to modern principles? Yeah, because the framework is a good framework. And that's the same with our three-tier system and our distribution system of alcohol in this country. Uh, it's a good system, and it works. Unfortunately, uh, oftentimes, we don't really appreciate what we have until there's some type of catastrophe. Something happens that we say, oh, wow, I'm glad we had that in place. Otherwise, we tend to just take it for granted that it's been there, and uh, then we start to kind of pick at it or, or uh, you know, change it. Um, the changes that will be detrimental to the system are the changes that uh, 
that damages effectiveness. Some of the things that Pam was talking about, where you get into um, uh, vertical integration and you get into tied house issues and things such as that, um, then you're then you are weakening the frame of of that system. So I think you know I I was having this discussion not too long ago, uh, recently in uh, the discussion over the hurricanes that we had. Uh, very unfortunate, but you know if you if you look at that as an analogous approach, um, the building codes when we had a hurricane come through Florida, Andrew in uh, the 90s, it it devastated. It was just horrible. Uh, buildings just collapsed um, on top of one another. Uh, houses destroyed, things like that. Uh, it took that catastrophe for them to realize that good code regulation and building code and zoning were important. Um, with this last storm that we had come through, we didn't see that kind of widespread damage and things going on. And that's, to me, an example of where uh, a system, a government system, a regulatory system uh, came through for the public that was probably just taken for granted or likely even complained about by many builders and people trying to build homes at the time. But now they're probably looking back and saying, wow, I'm really glad that those were in place. Hopefully we won't have that situation with alcohol in this country where we look back and say, wow, I'm glad we kept that system in place. I'm glad that three-tier system was in place. Um, But it could happen. And that's the reason that we... Uh, maintain the alcohol system that we do. And you don't have to look far. If you look in uh, other countries, India and even the U.K., you see where um, a a, a lack of this three-tier system and this orderly alcohol uh, distribution can be very detrimental to the Mm -hmm. uh, people that it serves, whereby it allows tainted alcohol or counterfeit product into the market with little recourse or means in which to stop it, prevent it, or even detect it until it's too late. Well, I um, I work and live in a control system. So when the states uh, were given the opportunity to uh, regulate the alcohol and realized um, after prohibition that um, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach and that you do have to go to the states and um, decide what works for that state. And in Maryland, they went to the counties. Uh, so Montgomery County is a controlled jurisdiction. And so I feel like um, for us, it's easy in a way because we have a lot of um, environmental strategies already put in place. We have guidelines and parameters that are already put in place because we um, we are able to put those controls um Without even thinking about it, we don't have to go to Annapolis. We are already doing things that people only wish they could do in other jurisdictions. Um, any thoughts on, uh, you know, the different jurisdictions and what's happening now um, with some half of the, you know, you hear people saying, you know, let's loosen it up, and other people saying, I'm so glad I live in this community. Well, and I, yeah, and, and again, that kind of goes back to the inherent dichotomy of the alcohol industry. Um, you know, it's a wonderful product until it's not. And <laughs> the, um, the, you know, it's re- our systems are reflective of that. The, the control system, um, a bit of a misnomer in its name because it only, the control only uh, 
talks about the purchase and sale of of the product in most cases uh, spirits so I think it's somewhat of a misnomer out there that a control model, because of its name, is more restrictive in uh, alcohol regulation and policy, and that's not necessarily the case. The control only relates to, at some point in the in the supply chain, the the uh, jurisdiction takes control over the product. It doesn't necessarily relate to the uh, overall regulatory scheme and what is allowed or not allowed in that particular jurisdiction. Uh, as it relates specifically to what we were talking about in supply chain or uh, you know, the local or craft distillers and things, there are certainly advantages, in my opinion, in a control model, and we've seen it play mm-hmm. out, uh, whereby um, it's uh, an easier route to market oftentimes for uh, smaller suppliers where instead of having to go to a, uh, as, as Pam was talking about, a big box and try to convince them why they should carry your small product uh, in the sea of large manufacturers that they already have and or their private labels, um, a jurisdiction may be more willing or interested uh, to promote a local product, and once it's listed, it's listed for the entire jurisdiction. So that is uh, certainly, you know, an advantage that we have uh, seen with some of the smaller mm-hmm. suppliers in the in the control system. That's so true. Well, um, as we get ready to close, uh, any any thoughts? Any final thoughts, Pam? Well, um, I, I just wanted to say something about the control system. At, Oregon has a control system, so I, I managed a control operation myself. But one of the things that people don't understand is that, that, that in toward liquor control, they recommended the, quote, control, unquote, system because they wanted to tamp down some of the ill effects of the profit motive. Um, when when someone is only motivated by profit, they want to sell the most product they can possibly sell uh, as as humanly possible. For alcohol, that's that's not a good idea because we don't want people to drink unlimited quantities of alcohol because that will create problems. So you need to kind of tamp down some of the profit motive, um, and and limit things like high volume sales and uh, other other regulations that kind of kind of keep some of the boundaries uh, of the profit motive from getting out of control. Neil, any final thoughts? Yeah, I um I well, I think Pam mm-hmm. put it uh very well and I will say this in the control system as I used to uh say in Virginia um, not all of my customers consume the product, to Pam's point. Um, when you are a jurisdiction responsible for the distribution of alcoholic beverages, you always have to keep in mind that you are there for the people of that jurisdiction, whether they consume the product or not. So it's not profit-driven. It's uh, population-driven. 
Um, you know, and, and a final comment, um, we've seen a recent survey that indicates the public's actually very supportive of alcohol regulation. People understand that alcohol is not an, uh, just an ordinary commodity and that it causes great harm, and they're actually very supportive of alcohol regulation. Now, that's a great survey. Um, we'll have to make it available um, to peop- to the listeners, and maybe we could put it up on the RRF site, uh, Brad. Yes, indeed. And uh, thank you, Kathy, and thank you so much to your two wonderful guests. This was really very interesting. Uh, next week, co-host Charles Curie and I will be joined by Dr. Hal Urschel, who's an author and addiction psychiatrist, who will be discussing his book, Healing the Addicted Brain. We will be considering the latest science regarding the impact alcohol overuse has on the brain, and we'll also consider the latest effective medical treatments for alcohol dependence. This is Brad for alcohol across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.